You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Roverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you This episode is dedicated to the memory of the Generalissimo, Stan the Man Lee. Face front, true believers. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to Speech Bubble on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Don't forget to subscribe and rate and review our show. If you rate and review our show, DM me on social media at SpeechBubblePod, and I will send you a comic from my personal collection. With me today... Today, we have the man his friends call AGP. I don't know if you've seen the Goldbergs. There's some characters in there called the JTP. This is AGP. He is AG Pascala. I know him better as Adam. He is an author and uh, he's done a lot of comics work. You might remember Brian Avenue from an earlier episode edited an anthology called Monstrosity. Uh, Adam. Uh, had contributed to both volumes of Monstrosity, so he's done some comics work that way. He's been part of the independently published zine scene. He's a uh, books editor at uh, Broken Pencil. He's written for some great highfalutin anthologies like McSweeney's and Wolfen and the Utney Reader. And he's been in Imaginarium, which is the best speculative fiction in Canada for 2013. But today he's here to promote his first novel. 
Uh, I knew uh, Adam back in the day when I used to be on his like editing list for some of his self-published books like New Town, Why Not a Spider Monkey Jesus, done with cover work by the legendary uh, cartoonist Michael Kupperman. But now he's doing his first ever novel for an outside publisher. Uh, it's called Yard Dog and it stars Jack Palace. It's the first in a series. Uh, he told me off air that uh, the name was inspired by a certain comic vigilante. Hey, Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me, man. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. It's been a long time. Um, I just want to tell the folks how we kind of met. Uh, we have a mutual friend named Chris Turner who did a book called Planet Simpson back in the day, which was chronicling uh, basically the rise of the Simpsons and why they're so culturally significant. Great and book. Great it, book for it, sure. It was a great book. And uh, I ended up meeting uh, Adam Ag at the launch of that. And we hit it off because he said, I'm working on a book called why not a spider monkey Jesus? And I said, wow, that's awesome. I want to read that. And he's like, well, I have a copy. And, and I, I read it and uh, we've been friends ever since. That's right. Yeah. The title of that one, why not a spider monkey Jesus? Yeah. The title basically sold the book, right? Yeah, yeah. When you hear that title, you either think, oh, that's terrible or where can I get it? Right? And I definitely <laughs> thought like, I got to get to know this guy for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but here I wanted to uh, celebrate his first novel, this, this noir novel. But before we get into that, all I know really about uh, AG's earlier life is that he was born in Texas. That's right. Yeah. Born and raised in Dallas, Texas until I was 14. And my mom met my stepdad and uh, wasn't my stepdad yet. Met the man who became my stepdad. And then he was transferred to Oakville, Ontario. So we moved from Dallas, Texas to Oakville, Ontario. And that was a bit of a bit of a culture shock at first, but, uh, you know, met a lot of good people there and anywhere you go, you're going to find good people. Right. So, so I got lucky found with a good group of people and, and, um, yeah, I became a Canadian citizen a few years after that was a landed immigrant for a while. And now I'm officially a Canadian citizen, dual citizen, I guess I'm U S and uh, Canadian. So we recently had Evan Monday on, who's also a dual citizen. And he told us that he likes his dual citizenship because he gets to vote in U S elections, but he hates his dual citizenship because he has to file two tax returns. So where do you fall on That's this? Right. The taxes are definitely a, a, yeah, it's a hassle more than anything. I mean, there is a tax treaty between the two countries, which, which, you know, evens things out. you don't have to pay twice. You have to, file twice, but you often don't have to pay twice. So, so that's good. Uh, it makes travel easy going back and forth with the two passports. You know, I keep joking with my wife that I should get uh, Mexican citizenship and collect the whole set, right? All of North America. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. The former NAFTA. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. So the thing I know about your Texas heritage is once upon a time, you wrote a blog called The Burger Quest, yes. where you were trying to recapture the Texas burger of your youth. That's right. That's right. Kind of a, a yeah, a Marcel Proustian kind of a adventure there, for sure. But I've never heard the actual story of like this actual first burger of your youth. Can you, can you tell me <laughs> what the burger was and where you where you had it? Oh gosh. Unfortunately I think it was more more of a conglomerate. You know, it's more of a, a like a combined burger. I can't specify any one burger 
in Dallas that was my go-to burger. You know, it was more like, yeah, that, that it might have only existed in my mind, to tell you the truth, that, that imaginary sort of, that, that, yeah, the ideal, platonic ideal version of a hamburger, right? Of a cheeseburger. What, what are the hallmarks in terms of what do you visualize in your mind it needs? That's a great question. It, 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 it's all about the beef, right? Burger, it's got to be all about the beef. You know, a lot of people, a lot of burger restaurants go crazy with the toppings and things like that. It's, no, I don't need gold leaf on my hamburger. You know, I don't need a lobster tail on my hamburger, right? It's got to be, it's got to be fresh beef, you know, ground ideally that day. Um, and that's where it all starts, right? And then you, you griddle it, you can griddle it or, or, you know, charcoal grill or whatever. Um, but once you, if you start with good beef, it's going to be a good burger. Awesome. Awesome. So did you end up finding that burger or something approximating that burger? There are definitely a lot of great burgers here in Toronto. Uh, the burger I found that comes closest, and this is still my go-to burger now, is uh, at Burger's Priest, the Burger's Priest. Um, I go to the original location down there on Queen, Queen East. And uh, yeah, I love it, man. I always get, I usually get I shouldn't say always. I usually get the uh, the Holy Smokes burger, which is a double cheeseburger with deep fried jalapenos, and then I add sautéed onions and mustard. And wow. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Man. That's awesome. And I, and I and I remember that on your way to that burger, you discovered a certain burger chain has a certain communist aesthetic. Uh, I believe it was Hero Certified Burgers. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the the, the posters and graphics on that place are definitely reminiscent of those Soviet uh, Soviet workers unite sort of posters. That's right. All the the happy ruddy faced children out in the fields with their tractor. Yeah, and I, and I remember you thought that the burger was a little depressing as, as well, right? It was. It was. It was. It was disappointing. I mean, my hopes were not that high. You know, you never know going into a chain, but sometimes you're surprised, right? And right. But that place, yeah, it was, I mean, maybe, I know a lot of people like it, but it just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. Right, right, totally. So, when you came to Oakville, right, um, what, like, you came, you fell in with a good group of people, like you said, but uh, when did you start getting into uh, comics and things like that? I started getting into comics really young. I actually still remember the very first comic book I ever got. It was given to me by my grandfather, Grandpa Jim. Um and I, every summer we would go to Lake Okaboji, which is in Iowa. And it was me and my little brother and my little cousins. And one day we had all gone out to the lake and he was splashing around, whatever. And we got back and my grandpa Jim had put one comic book and one little stuffed animal on each of our pillows. And the comic book that he gave me was, it was a reprint, but it was one of the classic Carl Barks, Uncle Scrooge comics. It was Uncle Scrooge and the Golden Fleece. Wow. Yeah. And it was a Dynabrite comic. So this would have been in the early 80s. And it was like, you know, really glossy paper and the colors just popped. And it was a beautiful comic. And I read it. And I'm like, I got to get more of this. That's sort of when I fell in love with Carl Barks and everything he ever did. I was like, I got to get more. So I just started buying duck comics hand over fist, right? Keep in mind, I was about, I don't even know, nine, maybe eight or nine at the time. And yeah. That's awesome. And like, I think the comics like predate DuckTales, like, like, and oh, like for sure. cartoon and all that sort of stuff. Like Carl Barks is like a total legend. I think sometimes like the Disney comics get overlooked 
uh, in favor of you know superhero comics and that sort of thing but like the artistry of those is like is like super classic right? oh you're absolutely right carl barks amazing artist and an amazing writer like he both wrote and drew it and some of the best comics not just best kids comics not just best duck comics but best comics ever i think were by carl barks did you ever like meet him or see uh, him at a convention or anything like that? I wish. No, no, I never did. That would have been cool. <laughs> that would have been totally cool. Say thanks for my childhood, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. So once you once you got into duck comics and stuff, uh did you did you ever graduate to anything else? Uh how long were you in the sort of duck comic uh uh, the spectrum. I was into the duck comics and and other things like, you know, like Hot Stuff, The Little Devil, like some of the Harvey comics, right? Casper, that sort of stuff. Um, the kids comics. Into that for, for a couple more years. And then I met a guy who told me about a comic book store in Dallas, Texas. And it was called Lone Star Comics and Science Fiction. And it sounded, to me, the way he described it, like it almost sounded like heaven, right? It sounded, it sounded like one of the best places ever. I'm like, I got to go here. So I got my mom to drive me there. And my mind was blown. It was just, you know, rack after rack of comics, shelf after shelf of comics, books related to comics. And it was the first time I'd ever seen like a direct sales comic book shop, right? And and then I started going there all the time. I started mowing lawns and saving my lawn mowing money and just going there and spending all of it on comics. That's awesome. Are comics sort of your gateway into writing? That is a great question. I probably have to say no. I started writing, I remember starting writing stories in grade two, and it was just about, and they were illustrated stories, but they weren't comics. They were just sort of stories I would write and then illustrate. And and back then, back then they all had the same basic plot. Like all the stories I wrote in grade two were about me getting lots of candy. Mm-hmm. somehow right it's like oh the candy there's a helicopter full of candy and it blew up and the candy is raining down from the sky and i run out with a garbage bag and start getting all the candy and yeah there's all variations on that you know some candy vehicle would crash and then i would go get all the candy <laughs> that is the candy fixation that's that's awesome yeah so then so you you wrote your first uh stories in like you know like the primary school and that sort of stuff and then you're reading comics and that sort of thing uh, but like a lot of your work is influenced by like science fiction and like things like that. I know that like, why not a spider monkey Jesus? It was like this like evangelical, like Pentecostal circus monkey kind of thing. <laughs> so, so I was, I'm like, I want to know yeah. like, where do all of your influences come from? Like what, what creates that, that diaspora that's in your head? Great question. Uh, why not a spider monkey Jesus? It's been called a graphic novel without the graphics because it is such a far out idea. And it is such a, a friend of mine described it as science fiction cartoon noir. And that's, that's basically accurate. I'd say that's, uh, that's what that book is. And that one came about because basically I was thinking about televangelists and how, how awful televangelists are, you know, how they, how they just exploit people's deepest religious beliefs for their own financial gain. And I was like, man, that's not right. And so I started doing sort of like a, you know, like a social satire, like a send up of that idea. And then it kind of morphed. <laughs> it, <laughs> turned, it turned into this, yeah, this, this crazy science fiction um, type epic uh, involving yeah, a talking chimpanzee and a, and a spider monkey who may or may not be the, the second coming. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> what what were you like as a teen? Like once you sort of 
got into high school and sort of thing was was writing a thing that you did all through your schooling or definitely definitely man i always wrote i uh, and i always drew comics too like i i would draw comics for the school newspaper yeah i'd always write stories i i you know had stories in the high school yearbook stuff like that and it's just always something i started doing or kept doing rather i started in grade two as i mentioned i just kind of kept it up um yeah, I started making my own mini comics in junior high and I would sell them through the mail. Uh, there was this comic, great comic newspaper called Comics FX, which was out of Seattle at the time. And I got my hands on that from another friend who was making mini comics, my buddy Scott Krakowski, who's still an amazing artist. He's making these awesome prints right now down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and he got me into that scene. He was a few years ahead of me, right, in school. Right. And uh, he was like, hey, check out this newspaper. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's all these other people making these great handmade comics. And so we started just swapping them through the mail and, you know, trading them and selling them through the mail. And, and uh, yeah, I discovered like a whole, whole scene that way. And it, it felt really nice, you know, being sort of part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah, right? it was like being part of like a bootleg nation sort of thing. You know, yeah. you're like swapping comics through the mail. People were, you know, swapping videos that way too. That's like right. pre-YouTube, pre-social media, all that stuff. That's awesome. Like, yeah. you, it's sort of like getting in on the ground floor of some pretty, uh, pretty weird stuff, right? It, definitely, definitely. I met a lot of really cool people that way too. You know, some people that I'm still in contact with now for sure. Uh, what was your, like, I guess your, your weirdest, most bizarre, uh, character that you met through the comic mail trading? Oh gosh, it would have to be, and I met this guy actually at school. His name was Colin Bollinger and he did, he did comics with my friend Scott and this guy, he was, he was a visionary artist, but he was, he was out there, man. He, he, one of the best, best artists I've probably ever met. Uh, he's unfortunately no longer with us. Um, yeah, he died a few years back, which is which is pretty sad. But uh, but his art his art will live forever, you know. Like it was, and he he was just this guy. He had he had really long. He almost kind of looked. His hair was kind of like Weird Al's hair. Remember, you know, had yeah. those kind of ringlets almost, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he would wear Colin would wear this this denim jacket that he had painted the back of this crazy scene. Um, yeah, and he again he was like a few years ahead of me, and I just saw these guys walking down the hall, and I thought that's who I want to be. I want to be like those guys. Nice. And so yeah, with their help, I basically made the made the leap from 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 uh, from geek to freak. <laughs> that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. You started like dressing the part and stuff too. Yeah. 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 Cool. Cool. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean. I was always struck by like, you know, you're the one who got into like McSweeney's and like, and like the Utney reader and like those, those, those like high independent literary things. And it sounds like from what you're telling me that like, you were always sort of part of that, like indie scene more than anything. What, what was it that attracted you to sort of independent comics and independent literature? I loved the idea of, of seizing the means of production. There's a great line from William S. Burroughs where he talks about seize control of the reality studio, right? And I love that idea. It's like, yeah, don't wait to be handed things or don't wait to see if somebody wants your ideas or wants your stories, you know, just make your stuff, make your comics, make your stories and get them out there. And, and you know, if they find an audience, that's great, but, but you've made it, right? you've done it. It's a thing that exists now and you've done it yourself with your own two hands. I, I really like that. And you were, did that with your books too, for like a long time. You know, I know that you, you tried sort of the literary agent stuff. It wasn't always successful, but uh, you like basically self-published your own books through through AGP uh, books, basically. That's right. And uh, 
like why not a spider monkey jesus jesus was first but then there was newtown tell us a little bit about uh, newtown all right yeah sure well you're right i, I published these novellas i self-published these um uh, I'll get back to Spider Monkey Jesus just really quickly. Yeah. A, that one, uh, my agent managed, this was a few years back, more than a few years back now. Um, my agent managed to sell it to a little small press here in town, Gutter Press. And basically, as soon as the ink on my contract was drying, Gutter Press went out of business. <laughs> oh, man. Right out. Ah, oh, man. And so then I was kind of, you know, these things happen, right? No right. big deal. You, you, this is all part of the game. You roll with the punches. Mm. So. So the book kind of sat for a while and technology got better and better, right? Like print on demand technology got better. There were more people doing doing that sort of thing. And so I started talking to some people that had done that self-publishing. And I'm like, well, how does it all work? Because, you know, in the past, before the technology had really caught up to the idea, there were a lot of self-published books, but they, let's face it, a lot of them were, were not that great. And not even in terms of content, but in terms of how the books looked, right? Like they'd be printed crooked, you know, the ink would be like fading on the page it just not a very good package but 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 now especially now you, you can do you can make a really nice book with not that much money which is great right and so i thought with spider monkey i thought well i could keep messing around with all these little small presses or i could just start my own little small press and and control it all maybe that's the control freak in me coming out but uh yeah and then i was as you mentioned you mentioned the cover was done by michael kupperman right. and and again the technology twitter was there and that's how i met michael kupperman he was on twitter and, and he had done some work with for mcsweeney's and so had i so we had that in common so i said hey man i wrote this book and i told him the title why not a spider monkey jesus i said would you like to do the cover and literally two seconds later he got back to me he's like yes absolutely and i'm like oh <laughs> this is going to be good that's awesome you just you just connected on twitter that's right. That's cool. Yeah. So did did you get any like insight into his process? I guess it was by by email that like, you know, you just told him the assignment and he sent you the work and that sort of thing. That's it. What was your first impression of the cover when you when you got it? He nailed it, man. It's so beautiful. Like he he yeah, I told him who the characters were. I told him sort of, you know, a general the general gist of the book and he sent me back um he said it was a sketch, but to me, it looked finished, right? I mean, the guy's such a pro. So, yeah, it looked amazing. I'm like, Michael, that's it. You nailed it, man. And so, then he just kind of filled in some some spot color here and there, and that was it. That was the cover. For those who don't know who Michael Kupperman is, how did you get into him? Like, what what was your first exposure to Michael Kupperman? It was his comic book, Tales Designed to Thrizzle, which is hilarious. It's one of the, one of the funniest comics I've ever read. And my buddy, Ian Deans, a really good friend of mine, uh, he is the guy who turned me on to that. I was visiting him once in Halifax and uh, my buddy Dean's just turned. He's like, hey, have you seen this? And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and I read it. I, be, I read the whole thing like right there and my mind was blown. I'm like, oh my God, this is hilarious. Yeah, so, so funny. That's awesome. And he, like, look him up. He's like a legendary uh, indie cartoonist and that sort of thing. And it was an ongoing relationship. He didn't just do, like, one cover for you. He did, like, covers for Newtown and and uh, other books that you did. The This and the That. Didn't he do a cover He didn't do that, that one. No, oh. he did He did Newtown. Okay. Um, uh, German Shibley did the cover of uh, The This and the That. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that that yeah. one is always really striking, too. We'll get into that one after. Oh, yeah. But the Newtown, I remember that was one of the manuscripts that you sent me to, to read and that sort of thing. And it was sort of like a like a futuristic 
town, but it was sort of like, not post-apocalyptic, but they were dealing with like weird environmental stuff and things that's like right. that. That's it right. reminded me of like Under the Dome and, and, and things like that, right? Yeah, that's right. And it, it, they sort of came out around the same time too. So maybe something was in the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, Newtown, it was, it was this giant spaceship basically that kept changing. It kept morphing into different dimensions. And so the, the whole spaceship just kept changing. And the people running the ship were humans, but the ship itself was alien technology. And so the humans were trying to figure this thing out, uh, you know, with, with varying results, shall we say. Right. <laughs> and, and, and you're right. It's basically sort of an environmental allegory. It's like about how we live on this planet, but we don't really understand how it all works. And we're just trying to muddle through and hopefully not kill everything and everyone in the process. Right, right, right. And this one is like, you know, much more sci-fi than Why Not a Spider Monkey Jesus is. So, what what were your sci-fi influences growing up? How did you get into science fiction? Love science fiction, man. Always have. Uh, let's see. I guess it all started as a lot of people, especially my age, with Star Wars. Going to see Star Wars in the Lake Okoboji drive-in at the age of four. And my mind was just blown completely. And, and from then on, I was like, yeah, more, more science fiction, more Star Wars, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, then I was late, later on getting into the books, uh, getting into stuff like Robert A. Heinlein, you know, all the classics, right? Clifford D. Simic. Not sure I'm saying that right. Simic, I think. <laughs> Great writer anyway. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and my uncle, when I was in grade five, my uncle Jeff sent me a giant box and I opened up this giant box and inside it was full of vintage science fiction paperbacks from the 60s that he had been collecting and hanging on to all these years. And I guess one day he just decided he didn't want them anymore. So, he sent them to me. So, there I am in grade five. I'm reading uh, all the Edgar Rice Burroughs books, you know, all the John Carter World of Mars stuff, which uh, around grade four, grade five, that's the perfect age to read that stuff, right? It's it's so good. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Like, this is so awesome. And, it, and it's so fitting because you're getting such an education, like, like you're, you're going to be ahead of your peers in like the science fiction realm. I mean, even on this, this network, we have a show called what mad universe where they take pulps like, you know, in the John Carter from Mars vein and they just, they just review it and stuff. And through that podcast, I've been getting exposed to all these like weird pulp science fiction books that, nice. uh, that were, you know, published in like the sixties and even, be- even before prior. So yeah, it, it's just, it's a, it's a weird world, man. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There was one, uh, one of those Edgar Rice Burroughs books I remember was called The Synthetic Men of Mars. Have you ever come across this book? No. It's crazy, man. It's, it's basically they're growing these warriors, these multi-armed warriors in vats. And one of the vats breaks and it's just like this wave of undifferentiated flesh just comes rolling out of this thing. And now and then there's a hand that pops up. Now and then an eye blinks, you know, kind of like Akira, right? At the end of Akira, Akira. Uh, spoilers. Uh, sorry, everybody. Um, but yeah, there's this, this wave of flesh. And that really stuck with me reading that in grade five. And so in Newtown, there's actually a scene where there is this big ball of flesh rolling down one of the one of the ship's corridors. And it's a deliberate homage to, uh, to that, the synthetic men of Mars. I wonder if Al Ewing read that when he was writing or before he wrote uh, Immortal Hulk number seven, which just came out this week, because in Immortal Hulk number seven, uh, these scientists 
capture the Hulk and they use like an animantium blade to like cut him into little pieces. So there's all these jars of formaldehyde oh, man. <laughs> the parts of the Hulk on shelves, but the Hulk is still alive because the Hulk is like immortal. And there's this crazy part and it reminded me of this giant ball of flesh where they're doing experiments and they realize that like his organs like come back together like on their own like oh, they, man. they yearn to like re to like regenerate and uh they're doing these experiments and the scientist realizes oh he says to the hulk you wanted us to do these experiments so that you could learn what you could do and then all of the hulk's organs sort of break out of these oh, individual man. jars and as they're collapsing they're collapsing over the scientist and the scientist gets absorbed by the Hulk's flesh as the Hulk is being recreated into his body. Wow. It's like the craziest thing. <laughs> and it reminded me that is completely intense. of that giant ball of flesh thing from uh, from these synthetic, uh, synthetic humans. Oh, man. Crazy. There must be like a common influence, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to check out that, that comic. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it, it, Immortal Hulk, if people aren't reading it, it's, it's this comic that is in the Marvel Universe and it does feature the Hulk, but it's much more of like a standalone horror sort of thing where oh, okay. the Hulk is like this, this immortal monster who will not die and every night Bruce Banner transforms into the Hulk and, and the Hulk's power seems to know no limits. He can like regenerate himself. He, he's much more terrifying and much more lethal uh, than you know him in the classic superhero sense. It's much more of like a monster uh, comic in the vein of sort of a, you know, a horror or something. Yeah, yeah. You know. I was just thinking it was definitely yeah, kind of a Frankenstein vibe going on. Yeah, there, yeah. But... Very, very much the Frankenstein vibe. It's, it's very, very cool. Uh, one of my, f and it only like tangentially connected to the Marvel universe. So nice. it's pretty cool. So yeah, like that's what that reminded me of. I, sorry, I went off on a tangent there, but, um, well, we're here to talk about comics, man. This yeah, is good. Yeah, this yeah, is good. totally, totally. <laughs> so yeah. So like, I, and, and one of the things, you know, Newtown was really cool and that sort of thing. And then the, this and the, that speaking of like striking covers that had a really striking cover and it was very influenced by, uh, the icons of pop culture because there's sort of a there's sort of a Disney send up on that cover, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. As I say, my friend uh, German Chiblet did the cover, and it's it's beautiful. Yeah, he's a he's a tattoo artist now. He's doing tattoos here in town over at uh, a studio in Ossington. Nice. I can't remember the name of the studio, but yeah, he's a really nice guy and super talented artist. And I told him. That one is sort of, it's all about Americana, right? It's, so I said, yeah, this book is about, about the weirdness of America. And he took that idea and he ran with it, man. He was like, okay, we're going to get Route 66 in there. We're going to get these characters that are not Mickey Mouse, but are reminiscent of Mickey Mouse in there. Mm -hmm. And and just all these sort of, yeah, symbols of Americana and combine them into this this great sort of desert yeah, landscape. And it is very, it is very, um, it wouldn't be out of place on the cover of a graphic novel, right? Like it has that sort of vibe to it. it it's, it's not photorealistic. It, it is cartoony because that's what the contents of the book are like. Right. And there's a, there's a big tradition in comics of like sort of lampooning Disney and like, 
making fun of them and that sort of thing. I know that there was that famous case uh, where that comic was produced that, that wasn't Mickey Mouse, but was, and, and uh, the the writer and artist of it got like, you know, they got like litigated against by, by Disney for yeah. a long time. Do you, do you remember this is, that? This is the Air Pirates, calling? right? Air the Air Pirates. Pirates. The Air Pirates. Yeah. Did you ever read that comic? I have only read bits of it. I've never seen the whole thing. You okay. know, there's bits of it floating around online. And uh, that's right. Uh, Denny O'Neill, I think, was the guy. And then some of his friends who did that. And they deliberately set out to basically basically challenge the copyright, right? As you know, like Disney keeps keeps boosting the copyright on Mickey Mouse, even though legally it should have expired a long time ago. Right. And so these guys wanted to test that. And and of course, underground cartoonists in the 60s versus the Disney Corporation, you know, who who has the money and who's gonna win. So unfortunately, yeah, they were they were crushed. But it was an interesting idea and the, the art on that, like it does look, it harkens back to the old, uh, the Mickey Mouse comic strip of, of the of the 30s and 40s. It has that same kind of look to it. Yeah, so it was pretty cool. Yeah, and I, speaking of Disney, I mean, Adam is, in addition to being an amazing writer, he's pretty good at the stock market. And I, <laughs> and he... When when Marvel was like bankrupt in like 1998 or just or just before because That's I right. guess Marvel Knights started the recovery for them. But you you ended up buying stock in Marvel and then selling it just before they got bought by Disney, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just I think, tell me the story. Okay. Well, basically, yeah. This is this is what I say. Like being being a comics nerd paid off for me in this in this regard for sure because I had followed Marvel's. You know, I, I've always sort of been interested in business and, and that sort of thing, but but so I'd been following Marvel's trials and tribulations for a while, right? I, I, I knew they were falling on some hard times. They had tried some stuff that didn't quite work out. You know, they tried to basically, they tried to kind of like monopolize the direct market for a while with their Heroes World distribution company. They tried to shut out Diamond and all the other big distributors and that was a disaster, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and they just weren't, the, the people running Marvel at the time in the, in the 90s, I don't think they realized what they had. You know, they were focused on on comics primarily, but also toys, and they were not exploiting the the intellectual property very much at all until right. they started doing, you know, the movies, they were talking about the movies, and there had been some Marvel movies in the past, uh, but none of them were that great, right? And I'm thinking right now specifically of the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie, which I don't think was ever officially released, but it's out there, right? You can it, get it. It definitely is out there. There's, 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 a, there was a lot of weird TV movies too. There was Generation X. There was uh, David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury, agent of Shield. Oh, there was a, there was a weird Captain America movie where he's like riding a motorcycle and he has like a Captain America helmet, but it's like kind of chips inspired. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's same era. And there was, I don't, I don't actually know if this ever happened, but there was, a, there was going to be, I don't, maybe it happened. I don't know. There was going to be a Captain America Broadway musical around that same sort of era. I don't know if it actually happened or not. You can see the ads in the in the comics, right? And it's Captain America with like a top hat and a cane, and he's dancing on a stage. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, I heard of the, I heard rumors of that too, but I never actually saw it. I have no idea. Yeah, uh, did it happen or not? I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess we got to find out. <laughs> yeah. To the yeah. theater, to the theater. <laughs> so, so like, yeah, it, like that's crazy. So they, you were around when they were like, you know, selling off all of their characters to like individual studios to kind of make back. 
their money, right? The desperation yeah. that started this whole, you know, now they're trying to like reclaim all of those all of those characters again. Yeah, that's right. They sold uh, they sold the X-Men, I think it was to Fox, right? 20th Century right. Fox. And I think they sold Spider-Man, was it to Columbia? Sony. 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 Yeah. And um, yeah, so 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 when I bought into Marvel, when I bought the stock, uh, the those movies were still on the horizon, but they were coming, right? They were talking about the Spider-Man movie, they were talking about the X-Men movie. And and the, the stock at the time, it was like a dollar, right? It was cheap, man. It was cheap. Because as you said, they had just come out of bankruptcy. They were still finding their way. They weren't really sure what was going to come up next. And I was like, well, the stock is so cheap. And then I watched it for a while. I watched it go from a dollar and then it went up to $2. And then it went up to about five bucks. And then it went back down to around four. I'm like, okay, here's where I'm going to buy. This is this seems to be like a nice a nice floor. So I started buying. And, and, you know, with the stock market, you get lucky, right? I mean, you can do your research, but you never know what's going to happen, really. No one's got a crystal ball, right? Right. But luckily for me, uh, I knew a little bit about the company, having been a big comics fan for so many years and, and following it and, and, and so, you know, some of the trade periodicals and stuff like that. And, and uh, so, yeah, I just started buying. And I said it was so cheap. And so, then it went up some more and I bought some more. And then it went up some more. So, I bought some more. And I just kept doing that. And then eventually... Uh, yeah, I had a p- pretty big position in Marvel and luckily for me, the movies came out and the movies were a hit and the stock started moving. Right. And then the company, and this is all, this is, you know, I, I, everybody knows this. They started saying, wait a minute, we got thousands upon thousands of characters that would be great for the movies. And the technology was there, right? You know, the Marvel movies in the eighties, they didn't have all this great CGI that we have now, right? right, right. You know, it looked, it looked totally cheeseball. It's just some dude in the spandex suit, right? right, right. But now, now they can make... Well, everybody knows all the Avengers movies, all this stuff, Black Panther, you know, all these movies that look great, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, and then I ended up, yeah, I sold, now and then I would just sell chunks of it if I needed the money. And then, and then, yeah, then eventually, as we all know, they got bought out by Disney and that's when I sold the, the bulk of it. And, uh, yeah, I took the money and ran. And at that point, like you got, you got a prospectus, like you were an investor that actually like got to know, like, like Disney you you sort of saw sort of what the what what the investors get to see when when bigger companies buy smaller companies right disney got such a great deal on marvel man i mean i think they pay it was four billion dollars right disney bought out marvel for four billion dollars uh the first avengers movie by itself made what it was like 1.5 billion right worldwide so right there one movie (laughs) i mean they've covered more than a fourth of their cost right yeah so, so Disney got a great deal is one way to put that. And then Marvel shareholders got screwed is another way to put that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> oh, we could have gotten so much more money, but, but oh well. Yeah. So do, do you wish that you still had a little piece now? Because the, the selling and the merging keeps happening. Like right now, Disney just got tw- 20th Century Fox and uh, everything except the Fox News and sports divisions, I think, are under Disney now. Yeah, so. that's right. They've got the Muppets now. They've got the Simpsons now. They've basically been buying our childhood yeah. <laughs> bit by bit. So, do you do you wish that you have still had the stock at this point? Well, I don't know, man. It's it's like I'm sure I'm sure Disney is a good company. I don't really know. I haven't been following the stocks so in terms of valuation, so I don't right. know. I don't know if it's a good investment at this point. Right. Um, I definitely admire them for being in this position where they have bought all these amazing properties, you know, right. to think that 
to think that yeah that that like miss piggy princess leia and like lisa simpson all exist now in the same disney <laughs> universe <laughs> is kind of mind-blowing <laughs> yeah and they're trying to figure out what to do with deadpool like this christmas they're releasing a pg-13 version of deadpool a recut version of oh deadpool is that right too, uh, called once upon a deadpool featuring <laughs> fred savage reprising his role from the princess bride as an adult with deadpool like reading the book that sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, and I and I think what it is, I think they're testing out, like Disney is testing out whether or not Deadpool is viable as a PG thirteen character, and whether they can it's actually hard. make money off of that. Yeah, it's hard to imagine Deadpool without the well, without the Deadpoolness. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Well, they're they're trying to keep the Deadpoolness, but make it a little less, a little more kid friendly. I guess. Right. Yeah. It's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Like the way that uh, things have just kept going up and up for them from the, from a movie perspective. Like Kevin Feige, who was around when you had stock in the company and is still around it seems like hit after hit after hit like they can they can do no wrong right at least in the from a movie perspective yeah they're doing great with the movies it's it's so it's so nice to see yeah it's so cool anyway man yeah i, I wanted to get into that because i never really heard the inside story i just was like oh you were lucky you had you know that was sort of my my impression you had the stock in marvel when everybody <laughs> wanted to get and get yeah. some you know what i mean yeah it was good timing man it was good timing I mean, it worked out. You know, they don't always work out, but that one definitely did. Nice, nice. That's so cool. That's so cool. So, yeah, like, for, like, the this and the that, to get back to that, like, it's sort of more of an anthology kind of thing, right? Like, they're sort of shorter stories, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a collection of vignettes. It's it's all these sort of... I, I describe it as, like, looking at America through, like, a funhouse mirror. Right. So, it's these little, little glimpses of America, but definitely distorted and warped, you know, through my own... Uh, surreal imagination right but hopefully it all adds up to sort of a, a a realistic picture if i can say realistic you know with all these weird little little things that i've been doing but 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 stuff like you know like ben franklin is in there there's all these sort of all this i wrote a lot of that book the this and the that i wrote a lot of those scenes while i was writing why not a spider monkey jesus which is also very centered in americana right, right. You, you have uh well the televangelists you have you know traveling carnivals you have all this sort of stuff right yeah, roadside attractions exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, world biggest ball of twine. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of stuff. <laughs> and so, so the this and the that is kind of a continuation of that, but without any kind of reoccurring characters. Just, just the images, just the feeling. It's very kind of expressionistic, I guess, in a way. Right, right. And from there, I kind of lost track of you a bit. And then suddenly, I'm, I'm like, he's putting out this book called Pack and Heat, and yes. it's, it's, it's a, it's a noir anthology inspired by miss pac-man that's absolutely right was that the next thing that happened like there seemed to be a bit of a hiatus there and then suddenly you were you were doing this pack and heat thing yeah i'd had a few stories uh published in some anthologies in the meantime but in terms of doing stuff myself that packing heat was was next for sure how did you how did you meet terry favreau well this is a great story because pack and heat it was actually the whole idea behind putting out a Ms. Pac-Man themed noir anthology came from a conversation that Terry Favreau and I were having on Facebook. And it was one of these weird conversations. You know those ideas you get like at three in the morning, you're like, oh, I got to write that down. And you wake up and you don't even bother turning on the light. You just kind of scribble blindly in the dark. And I wrote one of those. And the next day I looked at it, you know, in the light of day. And what I had written was, if Ms. Pac-Man were real, what would she smell like? 
<laughs> so in the morning, I looked at that. I'm like, man, that's weird. I'm going to put that up on Facebook as a status update. So I put that up on Facebook and everybody, you know, like my friends were chiming in saying stuff like, oh, she'd smell like cherries. She'd smell like marshmallows. But, you know, it kind of makes sense in terms of the game, right? There's cherries and marshmallows and things. And then Terry Favreau came into the thread and she said, Chanel number five with a base note of gunpowder. And I just went, wow, that's cool. And we started talking a bit about, uh, yeah, double um, classic noir films, you know, noir stories and how it'd be funny to have Miss Pac-Man in those scenarios. And then Terry said, yeah, I'd like to see Miss Pac-Man noir. And I said, hey, I would too. Let's make an anthology. And we did. That's awesome. And Terry Favreau, like she's, she won awards for her novella that she did called The Proxy Bride. Uh, her other books, uh, Sputnik's Children. Great book. Very, very inspired by comics and science fiction and the things that we're talking about. I, I reviewed that one as well for this magazine along with The Proxy Bride. So I kind of got a flavor of like the sort of stuff that she's into. I think like she's got a new book coming out this year called Generation Robot, if it's not out already. It's out. Yeah, it's out. It's available now. And that's sort of on that same vein. That's that sort of like nuclear futurism, science fiction. Jetsons sort of 50s version of the future type thing. The stuff yeah. we were talking about earlier when That's we right. were touching on science fiction and stuff. So so she is also very influenced by like graphic novels and video games and pop culture and, and that sort of thing. So it's definitely a perfect pairing for this book, for this pack and heat novella anthology type thing. How did you guys meet each other? How, like, was it just through Facebook? It was, we first met through Broken Pencil, actually. She was a contestant in the Broken Pencil literary death match where, you know, writers send in stories and Broken Pencil puts them up on, on a website and people vote on which story they want to see continue on to the finals. And so she had submitted a story and I was working for Broken Pencil at the time as one of the fiction editors. I saw her name. I really liked her story. Don't ask me anything about it because I don't remember. <laughs> but, but it was good. I do remember that it was good. And so, yeah, then we sort of connected on social media and we're friends on Facebook for a while. We actually didn't meet in person until we started doing this book, until we started doing Pack and Heat together. We put out the, you know, the call on social media. We said, hey, we're doing this anthology. Please send us some some stories, some poems. It's stories and poems in here. Yeah, and it's not a graphic novel. It's all prose and, and right. poetry. That's right. And yeah. people really jumped on the concept. They're like, wow, that concept is so weird. We love it. You know, here's some stories. So we got some great contributors in here, you know, like uh, like Gary Barwin is in here. You know, you might remember his, uh, his book. Um, uh, well, he's written lots of books, man. Uh, but he had one. Oh, now I'm blanking on the name of it. The Talking Parrot, uh, Pirate, Yiddish for Pirates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the book. It won a lot of awards. Yeah, Lisa DeNicolitz is in here, another great writer. Elan Mastai is in here, who author of um, All Are Wrong Today's. Great writer, great book. Uh, yeah, Jacqueline Valencia, another great writer. So there's a lot of people in here that really embraced the concept, you know. And we probably got probably 40 or 50 submissions. So it was, it was great as an editor to have this vast pile of stories to get to choose from. So we narrowed it down together and yeah, and, and, and put out this book. That's amazing. That's amazing. And and this was also uh, self-published through, through AG Books? That's right. I put it out myself through AG, AGP Books. Uh, yeah, it was printed here in town. Uh, color code printing put it out. So you were talking earlier about how like the technology is there 
for self-publishing. So what is that process like? Do you submit to like an outside company, like all the material or? Yeah, there's different ways to do it. But the way I did it, this book, as I said, was printed just here in town as a limited edition, only 200 copies. So, and they're almost gone. They're almost gone now. Maybe it'll be a collector's item someday. Who knows, right? But I knew I wanted to do, I didn't want to do print on demand for this one because I knew it was just going to be this limited edition, right? Right. Um, but the other ones like Spider Monkey, why not a Spider Monkey Jesus and Newtown? I both I did those through Create Space, which is part of Amazon. And the way that worked is, yeah, I uploaded the the files for the cover. I uploaded the files for the interior, basically, and then they just print them up. Wow, that's awesome! And like, th- there's like a book jacket with like a description on the back and that sort of thing too. Yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. It looks just like any other book you'd find in a bookstore. That's amazing. For sure, for sure. Do you ever walk into a bookstore and like find your books? I have seen, that has happened. That has happened. And it's a good feeling for sure. And I, I remember the first time that happened, it was a, not a book. It was a magazine I was in. Okay. And it was, this kind of gets back to the noir thing we were talking about earlier with my new book, Yard Dog. I walked into a Pages, which is no longer there on Queen Queen West. Classic bookstore. Great bookstore. I miss it daily. Yeah. And they had copies of this magazine. I'm not even sure this magazine is still around, but it was this little literary magazine called Zygote. And they had published a story of mine called like Toads in a Poison Tank, which was sort of a takeoff on the Child Roland uh, myth but done as like a mafia kind of retelling of the Child Roland myth. Uh. And so they published this and I walked in and, and saw it on the magazine rack. And I, and this was when I was younger. I was a lot younger. And it was like the first thing I'd written that I'd seen in a store. And it, right. just, it just blew my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in there. I'm part of it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm a writer too. And, and that's definitely happened to me. Like I've definitely gotten magazines on the stand. And then you find yourself scrambling to like buy all the copies <laughs> yeah. off, of the, off of the magazine rack and stuff. It's kind of sure, crazy. For sure. It's or a like, good feeling, right? If you're in a newspaper, you're like going into the box on the street and trying to get us many copies as you possibly can it's crazy so yeah like pack and heat i mean were you were you a classic gamer as well not really i i mean i grew up in the you know 70s and 80s i did have a game system when i was a kid i remember being so excited to get it you know one one day and it was uh, a texas instruments it was a ti 99 uh so yeah, ninety nine A. I can't even remember, but it was like you know those the classic you know, the big cartridges that go clunk into the the thing, and you hook it up to the TV. And and back then we still had uh, I had a few games on cassette tape. So you would plug in this cassette tape, and it would take like thirty minutes to load a game. And these are like you know the most simple graphics. This is early eighties, right? So right. you know it's like you're watching a square fight a smaller square. Yeah. <laughs> right? totally. This is not state of the art stuff. I mean, at the time it was right. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, some of my friends that were really into video games, you know, I, I hung out at our arcades now and then with my buddies and yeah, we would play uh Q-Bert, Q-Bert, a lot of Q-Bert, uh, Centipede. I love Centipede with the roller controller, nice. you know, you can go really fast and yeah, blast everything. And Galaga, I was terrible at never, you know, didn't get my quarters worth on that one for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. So there is like a little bit of like classic gaming history in you a little bit oh for sure just growing up in that era you know it was it was all around so yeah you'd play donkey kong uh, pac-man obviously miss pac-man and in the meantime were you publishing comics while you were self-publishing your own books as well at the same at the same time no i did the comics earlier okay and yeah the last comic i did the last comic i put out myself was 
It was a comic called The Meat Comics, and it was, a, again, an anthology, but it was all my stuff. It was like basically a collection of single-page comic strips. Right. And I, that one came out, I want to say, 1998. It was around that time. Right. And then my first book, I put out Spider Monkey in 2010. Right. Yeah, so there's a bit of a gap there. Yeah, and then Newtown was sort of right after that. Yeah. And then and then Pack and Heat and then Pack and, or the this and the that and then Pack and Heat comes out a little bit later. Yeah, right? Pack and Heat, let's see. When was that? That was just a uh, 2016. So yeah, not that long ago at all. Right, right. For sure, for sure. So then I'm like, okay, cool. Like, you know, you're you do this whole noir thing. Everybody sort of picks up on it. And noir was always sort of part of your work it was a big fascination for you i I remember this so where did noir come into your life another great question the first book that i remember reading as a kid that could be even considered noir was this book that i read i think in grade five and it was a book called durango street it was about gangs. It was like inner city gangs. And it followed this one character who had just gotten out of a juvenile detention facility and he was, you know, being reintegrated into society, but the odds were against him, right? Like he had this job, but his boss was treating him badly because the boss knew that this guy had no other place to go basically, right? Right. And just the environment he was living in. I believe the book was set in uh, inner city Chicago. I could be wrong about that. And this book came out in the 60s, and it was written by a social worker. I can't remember his name, but it was a guy who worked with young people and gangs. Right. I remember reading this book and just being blown away by this this subculture that I didn't really know much about. You know, in grade five, I didn't know about gangs. I, I, uh, you know, wasn't really part of my world. I mean, I knew people that maybe had older brothers or cousins that were in various gangs, but but wasn't really part of my world, right? So, reading this book, it was just this fascinating glimpse into this world of... Of, of violence and, and and kind of excitement, you know this, and, and also the, the the morality of it was such that the main character was a very moral guy. He was always trying to do the right thing, even though people were against him. So he was always fighting the system. He was kind of operating outside the law, but the law in his case wasn't fair. Right. That was, that really struck me as a kid too. That the idea that that you can have the law and then you can have justice, and the two don't necessarily meet wow you were you were uh, learning some high-minded stuff when you as a as a little kid <laughs> that's pretty awesome that's kind of cool no wonder you you eventually wrote for like the utney reader and in, in places like that that that's awesome so that's like your first noir experience then you're doing this and i mean did you read noir comics as well did that enter your sphere definitely definitely i remember really loving and this is sort of uh Later on, you know, when I was in high school, I think this, these came out, the um, Kyle Baker, The Shadow series, when DC was publishing that. I love that comic, man. It's so good. The art, the writing, like the characters in that. I just love that so much, which is one of the reasons I love uh, the cover of my book, Yard Dog. It has a very kind of the shadow vibe. Yeah, yeah. You your, your new book, Yard Dog, definitely has a very, very shadow vibe because, you know, on this cover, let me let me describe it because people aren't going to be able to see it unless they go on our social media at Speech Bubble Pod. But it's like the eyes. 
that you would see in the shadow. But I remember the shadow would have like the bandana over That's right. his mouth. Yeah, big in this case, it's just the eyes of Jack Palace, the main character, I assume. And then a big blue sort of thing over and then Yard Dog, the title, going across. So it's the title that's like covering his mouth. But it's a very, you know, shadow, severe, stare down kind of look. Absolutely. I really like it. I really like it. I like it too. Yeah. When the, when the designer sent me that cover and said, what do you think? I'm like, oh yeah, you nailed it. That's the one. Do you know whose eyes those are? I have no idea. I'm assuming it's like a stock photo from somewhere. (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know how you'd look that up. You know, like menacing man glaring. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what you would do. And obviously he's like played up the color on the blue of the eyes to sort of match the title and that sort of thing. You know, it's it's like these electric blue eyes that obviously weren't there to begin with. He he sort of he sort of made those like piercing ice blue sort of eyes. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll catch people's attention in the bookstores. <laughs> yeah, I, I really hope so. I mean, you you and I have a bit of a connection too because this is published by Dundurn, which is like a That's local right. publisher here. And Dundurn, uh, one of their authors, Peter McSherry, uh, really inspired the first comic work I did for the Toronto Comics Anthology. Oh, that's awesome. Because I I read about, you know, I, I, did, I did basically a comic about the first uh, gangland murder in Toronto when it used to be called like Toronto the Good and that sort of thing. And the book that I read from Dundurn by Peter McSherry who, you know, he, he would do stuff like that was like profiling, like old school gangsters from in Canada. He used to be like a cab driver. So he did like sort of a taxi cab confessions type of book as his first, as his first book of like all the people that he would like drive around in his cab and like the stories that he would hear and stuff. But I really dug like his, his old school sort of gangster stuff because it was like true. It was like true crime sort of stuff. So I was like really taken with this book. So I decided to sort of adapt it into a comic and that's, that's what happened. So Dundurn has been the source of, uh, of, uh, you know, literary output for, for both of us. That's awesome. Yeah. They're Dundurn. Yeah. I've, I've had a great experience work, working with them. Yeah. My editor, uh, Allison has been great. Uh, the guy who bought the book, the acquiring editor is no longer with the company, but, uh, Scott Frazier, also a great guy. Um, yeah, he's moved on to other things. But yeah, Dunder, and they've been they've been really nice to work with, and and um, yeah, I hope. Uh, well, I've got two more books coming out with them, so so that's nice that I'm working with them, that I'm able to work with them so nicely. Because are they also Jack Palace books? That's right. This is the first. The Yard Dog's the first book in the Jack Palace series, and then there's going to be two more. Wow, working on the second one right now. And I remember you telling me that there's a there's a obscure comic. Uh, connection and we sort of alluded to it at the top of the show that's what right. is this uh, comic coll- connection to uh, Jack Palace that's right well I've always been a fan of of Marvel's uh, The Punisher right I always liked that comic I remember the Mike Zek limited series back in the 80s it was amazing right you know The Punisher was sent to sent to prison and had to had to fight his way out basically of prison for like five issues it was insane <laughs> right mm-hmm. a great comic but you might remember as you know the the Punisher's name is Frank Castle right and so when I was coming up with a character name for my book I was that really inspired me I was like Frank Castle Jack 
palace so that's the connection there that's awesome that's awesome did you ever go to castle frank station when the punisher was coming out on netflix i I did i saw that promotion it was amazing (laughs) they did a whole thing where like they made like castle frank station like the id card of the punisher that's right castle comma frank Frank. exactly it was was awesome it was the best thing ever really good idea Yeah, yeah yeah totally so I mean, we're talking about noir. We're talking about noir comics like The Shadow, and we're sort of getting into this work. But I mean, I I really dig crime comics too. I don't know if you if you read some of like the Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips uh, series of graphic novels. No, there's, there's graphic novels like called The Criminal, and they're sort of standalone graphic novels. And some of the characters are, uh, and the settings are tangentially connected, like. You'll hear about a guy who murdered the father of another guy, and then you'll follow his son uh, in the oh, okay. in the next volume, kind of thing. You know what I mean? But they they don't know each other. It's just sort of they're all kind of criminals. They all hang out at this one bar, and these are sort of the stories of these people. And each graphic novel is sort of self-contained. Of course, Ed Brubaker. Uh, the creator of the Winter Soldier. He, oh, okay. he, he created like the the Winter's not Bucky Barnes, but the Winter Soldier identity for Bucky Barnes, the sort of Soviet assassin, yeah, reprogramming kind of thing. But him and Sean Phillips are sort of like the masters of crime comics. Now they've done stuff like uh, Fatal, which is like a H.P. Lovecraft fused femme fatale sort of thing with like the 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 Sithalu, is that how you pronounce it that that character or cthulhu i mean cthulhu oh okay you know cthulhu meets like femme fatale so they do that kind of stuff um wow that sounds nuts man. yeah there there's there's one that's like about like 1950s sort of communist hollywood called the fade out and like it's nice. like a murder on the set of during the waning days of the studio system and uh, they got to deal with like the house of un-american activities and, the, and that kind of stuff so the, there's that one my favorite though of the ones that they do is called killer be killed and it, it just sort of ended uh it has allusions to you know classic spider-man because they sort of they sort of take like covers like spider-man noir and use them as part of it and okay. they're, they're sort of cops that are that have names that pop up in like the spider-man series and that sort of thing but it's but really what it is is it's like this one dude who is like really depressed and he he tries to commit suicide and it doesn't work and he is saved ostensibly by a demon that he keeps seeing oh man and this demon says to him that in order to preserve his life he needs to kill one person every day and if he doesn't kill that one person every day he's gonna die or there's gonna be some sort of mishap and of course at first he doesn't believe him but you know things start happening to him he starts getting sick and whatever and the only thing to like cure his ails is you know killing someone wow but of course he doesn't kill uh, like good people or whatever he he's a dude who decides like there's a lot of bad people in the world and i'm gonna do something about it kind of like the punisher right, right? like very right. much connected to the punisher and that's why it's called killer be killed because if he doesn't kill somebody he's he's gonna die but uh it gets a little bit more complicated than that it gets a little less fanciful and gets more into like sort of this like crazy you know, Bernard gets 
thing if Bernard gets became like an actual crime fi- vigilante crime <laughs> oh, fighter <laughs> type, type, type thing. You know it's hard I mean? to picture. Yeah, like he's putting on he, he's putting on like the balaclava. He's like staking out the Russian mafia, and he oh, gets all man. he gets all tied up with the Russian mafia. But the cops are after him, and there ends up being like a copycat version of the of the killer and stuff. And it's it's this self contained. I think it was only like twelve issues. The story of this of this guy, this like twenty something who becomes this uh, you know this vigilante who's chased by this demon and uh, has to kill somebody every day. It's really amazing. It was it was the it was the most street level version of the type of thing that they they'd done. Like criminal uh-huh. was sort of more noir, and you know there's there's the fado which is like more Hollywood. This was like the street. You know, New York in the yeah, 70s gritty. style pulp kind of thing. I, I really think you'd vibe on it. Yeah, it sounds with awesome. The Jack Palance, this Jack Palance thing. And I should say that when I first read the title of this, I thought it was Jack Palance. Yes. But it's Jack Palance. <laughs> so don't get that confused. Other people have said the same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll have to do some like one handed push ups at the book launch or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, in tribute. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. So. The book launch is coming up, but we have to talk about the book. Like how, because you were self-publishing, you were going along. And I know that there were moments when you were sort of resigned to the fact that like, oh, maybe like another publisher is not going to like pick up any of my books and I'm just going to go along, you know, publishing my own books. And I'm totally fine with that. So how did this happen? Like how all of a sudden I'm hearing you're publishing a book and I'm like, what? Or Dundurn is publishing a book, you know, that's yours. And I'm like, what's happening? (laughs) How did I lose track of my buddy Adam all of a sudden? So how, what happened? Like you were doing self-publishing and then all of a sudden this happened. Yeah. Well, I've always, I've always sort of seen myself as like a hybrid writer. You know what I mean? So, so someone who has kind of a foot in both worlds, like the self-publishing indie kind of underground scene. Uh, you know, the zine scene, all that sort of stuff. And I've also, but I've also been in stuff, as you mentioned, like McSweeney's, things like this, that are sort of more, um, you know, more above ground, like more, uh, bigger, bigger sort of operations, yeah, right? Sort of highbrow. Yeah. And, and so, so my career is kind of led in these two parallel tracks. Um, you know, I think I'm always going to make like weird little books on my own stuff, like pack and heat stuff like that. Cause I, I really like the process. I love working with other writers. I love working with other editors. I love like designing stuff, working with designers. Uh, I love having a hand in like every aspect of a book's production. Right? right. I mean, I love books so much. So that's sort of where that comes from. And that you've been an editor yourself cause broken pencil, uh, Canada's national magazine for zine and DIY culture. You mentioned before you were like the fiction editor. So you have worked with other writers and stuff. Too. That's right. Yeah. Really enjoyed that broken pencil. I don't, don't work for them anymore, but they were a great group of people to work with for sure. We had a lot of fun right. and, and published a lot of great, a lot of great pieces, which is great. But I've also always sort of wanted a bigger audience, right. I guess is the way to put it. I've, I, I've always loved books. I, you know, going to the library as a kid, as a little, little kid was some of my most cherished memories of being a kid is going to the, the Walnut Hill Library in Dallas, Texas, right? I can smell it now just thinking about it. And so I've always wanted... To be part of that, to be part of that 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 world of of I've got a book out and here it is on the shelf somewhere, right? Right. 
And some of my books have been in libraries. Like you can actually find Pack and Heat. Uh, you can find this. It's in the Zine l collection at the Toronto Reference Library. Oh, that's right awesome. Now. Yeah, Toronto Reference Library, which is you know an amazing, amazing world-class library. It's got all kinds of stuff, but it also has a zine collection. And right. this, this is part of it. Yeah. That's amazing. So you guys can find that there if you're looking for it. But don't take it out because it's a reference library. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Don't steal it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've always liked uh, I've always liked crime fiction. You know, I mentioned Durant. Mango Street, and and from there I started reading all like classic noir, uh, you know, um, James M. Cain, you know, all these great guys, and I started reading things like more more modern stuff by. Um, James Elroy, who I think is one of the oh, best James writers. James Elroy is amazing. James El Elroy is one of the best all-time writers of all time, you know, in any genre, right? Yeah. I think he's just, he's just, he's just a head and shoulders above, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, an amazing writer, great stuff. Uh, and so I always, I like that kind of stuff. And so I, st I thought to myself, well, I always, I always read these kind of, kind of crime, crime dramas and crime thrillers. And why don't I try writing one right. myself? You know, putting aside like the the weird science fiction cartoon weirdness for a, for a little bit, and then picking up uh, yeah the noir pen, and so so yeah, so I wrote this crime thriller. I, I set myself the process was I said you know what I'm going to write a thousand words a day, no matter what, until it's done. Right. And I managed to do that. I mean, some days it was like maybe 780 and in other days it was like, you know, 1200. So, but it even out to about a thousand words a day. Wow. And I just streamed ahead. This was before I had kids. So it made it a little bit more possible. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, and it's still possible. It's obviously, you, you know, you could do that even if you have kids, you just have to wake up a little bit earlier or go to sleep a little bit later. Right. So, so yeah, I just plowed through this book and I think the momentum is there in the book. Like it's a fast paced book. It's a, it's a quick, quick read. And then, so then I had the book and I approached various, I had an agent at the time and my agent shopped it around and, and people liked it. But the unfortunate part, time was working against me because this was about 2008, 2009. This is like the trough of the financial crisis, yeah. you know, the global financial crisis. And, and we actually got a note from uh, an editor at Random House saying, oh, this is too bad because we love this book, but we've been told not to buy any more books right now. Uh, and I was like, oh, uh, twist uh, the knife, uh, right? Uh, <laughs> right in the heart. Uh, so close. And yet, but again, that's the game. That's the game, right? You know, as you know, you're a writer yourself, you know, rejection's all part of it, right? Yeah, so you yeah. just pick yourself up, keep on rolling. And so then I got another agent later, a uh, great guy, Kelvin Kong at K2 Literary. And he managed to sell this to to uh, Scott at Dundurn. Awesome, awesome. And Dundurn is like you know nice, like local. They do kind of pick up like these off kilter crime uh, sort of books. They, they, they've done that before. That's right. They have a great crime list, a big, big back catalog, and and current stuff coming up too. A lot of a lot of a uh, lot of great crime writers in the Dundurn stable for sure. And yeah, Dundurn, they're the, they're actually the largest independent publisher left in Canada. Everyone else has kind of been bought up by, by the, the behemoths, right. By the penguin random houses of the world. Right. Right. That's awesome. So tell me about Jack Palace and yard dog. Why is it called yard dog? And uh, like, give me a little taste. Sure. Well, yard dog, you know, it kind of, it kind of, the title kind of reflects back to reservoir dogs by Tarantino, right? Like that that movie, which is so so great, such a great movie. But I wanted to ha kind of a, have an echo of that. And, you know, Reservoir Dogs, you never really find out what the title, is the title connected to the, the movie in any way, right? right? 
In my book, I do spell out there is a connection. Like the main character, this, I don't think this spoils anything. Uh, it, it might though. So if you don't want spoilers, cover your cover your ears. Um, yeah, the main character is compared to there's a there's a his, his ex girlfriend basically is talking to him and he's saying and she's saying you know when I was a kid, I would go visit my uncle and my uncle had these dogs and one of the dogs lived in the house but the other dog lived in the yard. Because it was, it was like a farm dog, right? It was this unruly, big, mastiff kind of dog that if it was ever let into the house, it would just wreck the joint, right? It would destroy everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so Jack's ex-girlfriend says, and that's you. You're like that yard dog. Yeah. So everywhere he goes, like destruction will follow kind of thing. That's right. That's right. Sometimes of his own making, sometimes victim of circumstance, but, uh, but yeah, he, he, uh, he, he's not a civilized man, shall we say. Right. Right. And like when you're writing noir, do you have to write in that kind of classic noir voice? The, the, the thing that we always think of when we watch like the Hollywood noir movies? Great question. Because in short, no, because because I I was very much cognizant of that. I was very aware that I did not want this to be like a pastiche in any way, right? Or, or even like an homage. I wanted this to be fresh. I wanted it to sound kind of now. You know, I wanted it to be set. I didn't want it. Yeah, I didn't want that classic, you know, ah, drop the gats, see? Eh? You know, yeah, I didn't, want, I didn't yeah. want that. Or she walked into my office. Yeah, that's right. She had legs for days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, because, yeah, because that story's been done, right? right that story's right. been told, and it's been told. It's been told very well, right. but it has been told. So, I wanted to kind of kind of freshen it up a little bit. Right. That's awesome. So, so who is Jack Palace uh, beyond a, a dude who's, you know, wanton destruction follows his every move? What does he, what does he do for a living? He is basically an enforcer. Uh, he fell in with a bad crowd when he was younger. Um, he has a mentor that is in this book, a man only known as the chief. And they met working a legit security job. And, but the chief liked Jack's chops, basically. It's like he saw something in him and he said, hey, had you ever thought about you know doing some other kind of work? And explained that, you know, some people gamble, some people borrow money, and then they can't pay back that money. And then somebody has to go get the money. And so he kind of takes, the chief takes Jack under his wing and they start doing stuff like that, you know, enforcing for loan sharks and, and, and mob figures and basically, yeah, collecting money from people and encouraging people to pay up shall we say <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's so cool um yeah like i think this book is hitting me at the right time because i've i've been listening to podcasts that like profile people like you know richard kuklinski and like you know the Iceman and that sort of stuff so so i think this is like totally right up my alley um there is sort of a long tradition of like you know these sort of lone male protagonist crime slash spy thriller series. There's like the Jack Ryans and the Jack Reachers and now That's there's right. the Jack Palace. That's right. You know? Yeah, Jack is definitely a, a thriller type name. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Maybe it's been done too much. But How do you feel about being part of that tradition? I, like I, a lot of them have been turned into like TV movies and and franchises and stuff where it's like, you know, one man against the world, kind of, kind of. Right, thing. right. You're absolutely right, and that that's a story that's that we've all seen and enjoyed. Right, and it can be done very well. Uh, with this one, with Yard Dog, I wanted to, 
I want to go a little deeper into Jack's character, right? right. I wanted, uh, I was thinking specifically actually of James Bond. Like we never know that much about James Bond, even though we've seen so many books and so many movies about right. James Bond. But who is this dude, right? Like yeah. we know what he does and that's sort of enough. Um and then, you know, in later James Bond, they, they sort of gone through his character a little bit, right? Like we saw his childhood home get destroyed in one of the movies and that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, but so, yeah, with Jack Palace, I wanted to think, I was like, well, how, how, if this guy was real, if Jack Palace was a real guy, what happened in his life to make him the way he was? Right. So I got, so I started talking about that a little bit in the book. I don't, it's not what the book is about. You know, the book is very much a thriller. It's very much Jack on a mission. Um, but there is a little bit about that because I, I was curious about that. It's like, you know, like, like, just like with James Bond, like what kind of background, what kind of childhood do you have to have to be James Bond? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? right. And so I thought about that a lot with this book. What kind of background, what happened in Jack's life to make him the way, the way he is? And it becomes a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more I hope so. sympathetic. Yeah. Like, I hope so. In the way that like, I don't know if you saw like the third season of Daredevil on Netflix. Oh, but, I still haven't. No. But they, they really try to like make you sympathize with a character like bullseye and the kingpin and so that the villain has you know at at points you sort of feel sorry for them you know what i mean right like that kind of thing and and does that must be in here a little bit like you're you're sort of on his side even though he's not the most you know he's not he's an unsavory character yeah yeah he i mean he Jack Palace operates in this, yeah, this this unsavory world for sure, but but he wants out and he's trying to get out and he does have a strong moral core and I think that's what his redeeming feature as a character, right? Like right. he's not a guy who would just stab anybody in the back for a buck, right? right. Like he he has a specific code and he's following that code. Yeah. Nice. And don't cross that code. You're going to break some necks, toss some heads and stuff. That's awesome. That's so cool. Well, I can't wait to get into it. I mean, the we're you know, you're listening to this at the end of uh, November, and that's because the book is launching at the end of November, right? So that's right. Jack at uh, Yard Dog comes out in Canada on November 24th. It'll be in the stores. The book launch is on November 29th at uh, the Transac, the main hall at the Transac at eight o'clock on November 29th. Um, yeah, come on out. It's going to be a party. Yeah, that's so awesome. You mentioned that, that that this is the first book in a sort of three book series. So, what's the arc that you want to take this uh, character on? That's a great question. Uh, well, I'm working on the second book now. It's I'm doing the rewrites on the second one. The arc I want Jack to find. Basically, I want Jack to be at peace. And that sort of goes against a lot of a lot of these thrillers, you know, because if he ever was at peace, that means the series would be over, right? <laughs> right? He'd be done. Um, but but that's what I want for him as a as a character. I want like he's a pretty tormented guy, you know. So I I would like him to find some kind of maybe not even just happy, not necessarily happiness, but but some kind of peace, you know. I want I want him to come to a come to a moment in his life where he can be happy right, right. Or, or be satisfied, you know, and not, not just be, yeah, not be on the run, not being tormented, not being, you know, not having a price on his head, that sort of thing. I feel like this would be like the perfect book to adapt into like a graphic novel or something. There are a lot of strong graphic elements in it. Absolutely. It's, it's, that's how I think, right? I'm a visual thinker yeah. and that goes back to, yeah, comics for sure. Comics and movies. 
Um, one of the best, some of the best writing advice I ever saw was something that Jack Kerouac wrote once where he said, and this is, he's just trying, he's talking about, you know, how to, how to write a scene better or something like that. And he, and he said, try to see the picture better. Right. Right. So many writers can get carried away in like, in world building or, or creating character, character motivations or, you know, character dynamics. All this stuff is very important. But to actually stop for a minute and close your eyes and try to see the scene in front of you, I think is so, well, it works for me. As I say, I'm a visual, visual thinker. So, so that was advice that really resonated with me. And that's something I thought a lot about in this book, Yard Dog. It's set here in Toronto. So, so there's a lot of scenes where, you know, I would walk through a neighborhood and I would see specific things like a bit of graffiti here or like a, like a, like a, you know, two guys fighting over here. Or there's one scene in this book that I saw. And again, this doesn't spoil anything, but it's something that I witnessed myself. And Jack sees it in this book where he, he sees a bunch of, of, of gulls, seagulls flying in the air. And they're all screeching and calling and going in circles. And they're going down into this alley. So Jack, and this is something I did too, walked across the roof and looked down into the alley to see what was going on. And these seagulls had found, like, it must have been about seven garbage bags from the nearby Kentucky Fried Chicken from the KFC and these seagulls were ripping open the bags and eating all this like thrown out fried chicken so so there's this scene where in the book and again this is just ripped out from my real life the scene where these two seagulls are, are fighting over a drumstick Right. I mean, and that's like, is that cannibalism? Not quite, but, but it's close, right? It's close. <laughs> totally. totally. Feral seagulls. Yeah. It's a, it was this really kind of disgusting scene, but very visual, right? And yeah. I thought, you know, that's, that kind of really sets up a, a, a place, a time and place and a flavor for the neighborhood that Jack finds himself in. Yeah. You can, you can really like illustrate the rot of our society. Yeah. Through that, uh, through that uh, metaphor there. That's right. That's right. It's not dog eat dog. It's seagull eat eat chicken <laughs> exactly <laughs> really really cool that's awesome so you're you're lodging it at the transact is uh miracle beard uh, your band making up a, a special performance for the for the launch no no not this time not this time <laughs> yeah. yeah my other my buddy ron who's in miracle beard with me he lives in helsinki now so he's over in finland oh. so we we you know we work on stuff sort of long distance and he usually comes back for the summer for a little while and then we do some some music together then yeah uh, for those who don't know and that's everyone miracle beard <laughs> is sort of a improvisational uh bring your instruments and get together kind of band and then they like they make like a cd or like a recording right yeah that's right we we just uh yeah we just press play and let her rip and then and then do some post-production afterwards add some effects and things like that and yeah we started off kind of basically freak folk i'd say and then Mm -hmm. it's kind of morphed over the years like one of the last albums we did was was space disco of all things, we started getting into all kinds of samples and loops and things like that. And, but also with, you know, still, still trying to keep it live and, and fresh. Yeah. Immediate and just seeing what happened. Embracing the happy accidents is what it's all about. It'd be like if an actual band like morphed into a drum circle, but with like instruments and stuff, because like anyone can like join. Yeah, definitely. Everyone's right? a member. You are all members of Miracle Beard. <laughs> nice, nice. So uh, now that you know that you're part of a band, go forth. And uh, check out Yard Dog. Uh, where is it? Everywhere books are sold. It's gonna be everywhere. That's right. It's uh, yeah. It'll be everywhere books are sold. Uh, the, the e-books are available as well if you like e-books. 
Um, yeah, they're on they're on Apple Books, they're on Kobo, they're on uh, Kindle. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, you can get them everywhere. Ah, uh, man, I think it's gonna do really well. You have like a really unique voice. It's a voice that uh, you know not a lot of people have heard, but they definitely deserve. Uh, the privilege of, of hearing it. So uh, I really am excited for you. I hope that ev- it's everything that you want it to be and it, it takes off and uh, Jack Palace becomes one of those like, you know, Tom Clancy type of characters that just keeps, keeps going. <laughs> you thought he was retired at the, you thought he found peace at the end of the third book. Oh no, the money train is going. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's and right. we're going to keep going until infinity, right? That's, like, right? that's what I want to have it. I want it to be like those, those dime store shoppers, drug mart novels where they do like another another one of yeah. that series, right? Yeah, man, I'm sure my publisher would be happy with that too. <laughs> be awesome. You get like the raised embossed font that those books always have, you know? Yeah. You'll be up there with like Dean Coons and all, the, all those <laughs> Hey, I wouldn't say no. I wouldn't yeah. say no. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. Oh, no, thanks for the kind words, man. Yeah, that, and, that's really great. And thanks for coming out, man. This has been amazing. It's been great to catch up after such a long time. Absolutely. I hope people go to the launch. I hope they pick up this book and we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thanks for having me, Aaron. This has been a lot of fun, man. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and the Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.